Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Today we'll have a conversation with Daniel Darling, author of The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus. And we'll also talk with Mark Stewart, Losing My Voice to Find It. How a rock star discovered his greatest purpose. Both interviews coming up later today. And we'll resume our um, recitation from Heaven and Nature Sing, written by Hannah Anderson. It's an Advent devotional, uh, this time focusing on the Holy Seed. That's coming up in the last segment of today's program. So a lot, lot going on. Well, you've probably heard that Democratic Governor Kate Brown of Oregon announced yesterday that she's commuting the sentences of the 17 inmates on death row here in the state, noting that their sentences will be changed to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Uh, Brown, who's set uh, to leave office next month and has, of course, no accountability for what she's now decided to do, said her order will take effect on Wednesday. I have long believed that justice is not advanced by taking a life. So she waited till the last moment of her office to take that stand. She went on to say, and the state should not be in the business of executing people, even if a terrible crime placed them in prison. Uh, No prisoner in Oregon has been executed in 25 years. So while she's taking a a moral stand, it won't have much of an impact. The governor has said in her first news conference after taking office in 2015 that she would continue the death penalty moratorium implemented by her predecessor, former Democratic Governor John Kitzhaber. Governor Brown said in her announcement on Tuesday that victims experience pain and uncertainty while the individuals sit on death row, especially in states with moratoriums on executions without resolution. My hope is that this commutation will bring us a significant step closer to finality in these cases. To date, 17 people have been executed in the U.S. this year, all of which were carried out by lethal injection, according to the Death Penalty Information Center. All of these executions took place in Texas, Oklahoma, Arizona, Missouri, and Alabama. Oregon is one of several states in the U.S. to move away from the execution of prisoners. Governor Brown acknowledged in her statement that she previously granted commutations to individuals who have demonstrated extraordinary growth and rehabilitation, but that this commutation is not based on any rehabilitative efforts by the individuals on death row. Instead, it reflects the recognition that the death penalty is immoral. Again, she waited until weeks before her uh, uh, her. office was uh, concluded. Uh, It is irreversible punishment that does not allow for correction, is wasteful of taxpayers' dollars, does not make communities safer, and cannot and never has been administered fairly and equitably, end quote. Well, in May of 2020, the Oregon Department of Corrections declared that it was phasing out its death row and reassignment Uh, reassigning those inmates to other special housing units or general population units in state prisons. Well, Governor-elect Tina Kotek here in Oregon plans to visit all 36 Oregon counties over the next year in an effort to build trust in the state government, she announced during an annual business gathering on Monday. Now, my guess is a visit will be nice, but what the legislature and the governor actually does will either uh, uh, elicit trust or not. Uh, Governor-elect Kotek was the keynote speaker at the Oregon Business Plan's Leadership Summit, which has drawn hundreds of business leaders, elected officials, and lobbyists to Portland for the past 20 years. She laid out her plans for the first year in office, which she said will encompass three overarching goals. First, she aims to build trust across Oregon. That includes meeting with Oregonians in their communities with a statewide tour she'll start 
um, with trips to Yamhill and Douglas counties before her January 9th inauguration, as well as her pledge to meet every two weeks with Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler as the state's uh, targets um, the largest city addresses homelessness. That goal also includes fulfilling campaign promises to address Oregon's twin housing and homelessness crisis, lack of mental health and addiction provider and uh, flailing schools uh, as standardized tests show Oregon students falling far below their national average in math and reading. Despite challenges, Oregonians don't back down when they uh, when things get hard, Kotex said, we dig in, we think outside the box when times get hard, end quote. Second, the mayor, uh, rather governor-elect, said that she'll focus on increasing accountability and oversight in state government, taking a customer service approach to public service. She said she'll deliver a list of expectations to each state agency when she takes office in January. Uh, after her speech, Kotek told reporters she's uh, possibly considering replacing the heads of two troubled Oregon agencies, Colt Gill, director of the Oregon Education Department, and David uh, Gettensfield, uh, acting director of the Oregon Employment Department. Gill has been blamed for long school closures that contributed to learning loss, and um, Gertzenfeld, uh, who was elevated in 2020 after outgoing Governor Kate Brown fired the previous employment director over the state's botched pandemic unemployment response, has presided over the agency that is still struggling to make pandemic-related payments and has been slow to organize a paid leave program that's supposed to start next year. The head of the Oregon Health Authority, uh, Patrick Allen, will step down as Kotech takes office, as will Steve Allen, the agency's behavioral health director, the uh, governor-elect pledged during her campaign to replace both Allens, who are not related. She said her focus on accountability will include changing how her team thinks of success. In the state capitol, where Kotex served as representative since 2006 and as Speaker of the House nearly a decade, she said it was too easy to declare victory once a vote was over or a bill signed into law without keeping sight on the end goal. The real victory doesn't come until the uh, the working mom enrolls her kids in an affordable child care program. Success doesn't come until the veteran who's been uh, living on the streets moves into permanent housing. And we certainly don't claim success uh, that students who's um, been struggling to read knows the satisfaction of reading her first book. Finally, Kotex said that she'll encourage new and more robust partnerships between state and local governments and between the public and private sectors. That includes continued working on um, housing and homelessness, child care and infrastructure. And it includes making sure Oregon receives a substantial chunk of the $280 billion in available federal funds from the CHIPS and Science Act for Semiconductor Manufacturing and Technological Research passed in July. Well, she went on, uh, but we'll see how uh, uh, she conducts herself in office once the oath of office is taken in early January. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. Quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a little note. Had a little birthday party for my mom last night. Her 92nd birthday had a cake, celebrated, had fellowship, and um, just so grateful to be able to... Uh, have my mom at at 92 we didn't think it possible when her kidneys began to fail but she has survived and thrived and so grateful for many of you who uh, sent well wishes to her i read them to her last night at her little birthday party and she was just amazed that people that she doesn't know personally uh, would have such kind things to say so thank you to those of you who did 
Well, taking a look at some of the headlines, a deadly twister and a tornado tore through a small town, leaving a young boy and his mother both dead and dozens injured. And in a sharp turn, the knife was possibly that was possibly used in the Idaho College killings may have backfired on the attacker, according to experts. Uh, that evidence may lead to the attacker. Inflation is in focus. The Federal Reserve uh, was set to slow its rapid pace of interest rate increases at its final meeting of the year this week amid early signs that, that stubbornly high inflation is finally starting to cool. They made the decision to uh, raise the interest rate by just a half a point. Tragic loss. A veteran state trooper was killed in an animal attack outside his home. Acting as an agent, the FBI possibly violated the First Amendment with Twitter moderation requests, experts warn. And big interest, a senator is demanding a probe into the vetting of Biden administration's alleged luggage-stealing nuke official who is no longer employed. Um, an 89-year-old Democrat senator is refusing to set, step down despite concerns over mental fitness. And maybe, maybe not. Shortly after the a few members of the Democratic Party announced their departure to new political affiliation, moderate Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat from West Virginia, revealed that he will not be leaving the party, at least for now. Editorially bankrupt, liberal-leaning network ends the 2022 with significant journalistic errors. NBC News ended the year with significant journalistic errors and controversies from Paul Pelosi to Brittany Griner and the NBC correspondent behind the retracted a Pelosi story has returned to the air this week with no explanation for his absence. What bias? NBC News won't provide transparency on retracted Paul Pelosi report or the absence of its own reporter. That remains a mystery, even though he's now returned. Saying there was no ill intent, former Twitter CEO claims no political motiva- motivation rather behind shadow banning, aiming the fallout um, over Twitter files. Well, the... Uh, Formidable POTUS Kamala, Washington Post reporter, defends the vice president, claiming the vice president is more effective than she looks. Is that a compliment? Is that a backhanded compliment? Or what was that? Well, President Biden signed the Respect for Marriage Act. The president signed the bipartisan uh, act on Tuesday, codifying into law what was already the law. Uh, The signing took place in a large ceremony with thousands of attendees on the White House South Lawn. The act does not guarantee the right to marry. It uh, specifies that states must recognize same-sex marriages across the state lines and that same-sex couples have the same federal benefits as any married couple, which has already been the law. Charlie Kirk points out that Joe Biden has invited a drag queen who dances for children to the White House to participate in the bill signing for the Respect for Marriage Act. This isn't respect for marriage. It's a slap in the face, and that's exactly what it's intended to be. Cambridge Dictionary modifies the definition of man and woman. There seems to be some confusion about which is what. Cambridge Dictionary is being criticized by conservatives on social media for altering the definitions of the words man and woman to include people who identify as a gender other than their biological sex. The definition of woman, which previously represented the longstanding view on sex, now states that a woman is an adult who lives and identifies as a female, though they may have been said to they may have been said to have a different sex at birth. Well, they either had one sex at birth or the other. Anyway, that's the new definition. Similarly, a man is now defined as an adult who lives and identifies as a male, though they may have been said to have a different sex at birth. That clears things up. Christopher Rufo says the Cambridge Dictionary just dropped a new definition of woman as well.
Consumer price index at 7.1%, while inflation gradually declined. Inflation slowed sharply in November. The government report Tuesday continuing a gradual decline since price hikes peaked across the U.S. this summer. The consumer price index rose 7.1% over the last 12 months. The Labor Department said lower than 7.3% increase uh, economists had expected and the slowest rate of inflation since December of 21. President Biden has signed some of the largest spending bills in U.S. history, arguing that they were needed to keep the economy afloat and ultimately could reduce some consumer costs, including by improving transportation and energy efficiency. Last year, Biden signed a $1.9 trillion stimulus bill that passed without Republican support and a $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure law. This year, he signed a $280 billion uh, dollar bipartisan Chips and Science Act and a $437 billion environmental and health care spending bill and a $270 billion veterans health care bill. The U.S. is looking to send missile defense system to Ukraine to protect against Russian strikes. The U.S. is finalizing plans to send the Patriot missile defense system to Ukraine, a decision that could be announced and was this uh, this week. Ukraine has asked its Western partners for air defenses, including U.S. made Patriot systems to protect it from heavy Russian missile bombardment, including against its energy infrastructure, ground based air defense systems such as uh, Raytheon Technology Corps Patriot are built to intercept incoming missiles. A former Iranian soccer player has been sentenced to death for participating in protests. The Iranian soccer star Amir Nazar Azadani is reportedly facing execution after allegedly participating in protests for women's rights. The 26-year-old is accused of rebellion, membership in illegal gangs, collusion to undermine security, and therefore assisting in a um, an Arabic word I cannot pronounce. It means enmity against God. It's a capital crime in the Islamic Republic. Well, the International Union of Professional Soccer Players released a statement on Monday afternoon expressing its disgust toward news of the Iranian players execution or pending execution. Twitter has reinstated accounts, some doctors who were removed by way of covid misinformation policy. Twitter has reinstated the accounts of two doctors who were banned over the social media platform policy on COVID-19 misinformation. Dr. Robert Maloney, an mRNA vaccine researcher and cardiologist, Dr. Peter McCullough, both saw their profiles reactivated amid Twitter owner Elon Musk's ongoing effort to restore accounts that were previously banned. Peter McCullough said, all right, everyone, I am back on Twitter. Let's see very see my um, verification and completely uncensored, no unfollow programs, no bots assigned to me and absolutely no shadow banning. Let the world hear the medical proof. Ninety eight percent want it on the pandemic and more. End quote. Well, DeSantis has taken a large lead over Trump in new polling. USA Today writes that by two to one, GOP and GOP leaning voters now say they want Trump's policies, but a different standard bearer to carry them. While 31 percent want the former president to run, 61 percent prefer some other Republican nominee who would continue the policies Trump has pursued. They have a name in mind. Two thirds of Republicans and those inclined to vote Republican want Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to run for president by double digits, 56 percent. To 33 percent, they prefer DeSantis over Trump. Byron York says that DeSantis up, Trump down. Two thirds of Americans don't want either Trump or Biden in 24. Majority of GOP want Trump's policies, but with different candidate DeSantis over Biden in matchup. 
Sam Bankman-Fried has been charged with fraud. The Wall Street Journal reports that the FTX founder oversaw one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. A top federal prosecutor said in charging that the former chief executive stole billions of dollars from the crypto exchanges customers while misleading investors and lenders. An indictment by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York unsealed Tuesday charges that Mr. Bankman-Fried with um, eight counts of fraud. Prosecutors allege that he took FTX.com customers' money to pay the expenses and debts of uh, Alameda Research, an affiliated trading firm. Mr. Bankman-Fried is charged as well with conspiring to defraud the U.S. and violate campaign finance rules by making illegal political contributions. Abortions plummet in Texas after the ban. They fell over 97 percent after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade in June, even before Texas abortion trigger ban went into effect. According to new data from Texas Health and Human Services on induced terminations of pregnancies, uh, just 68 abortions were performed in July, down from 2,596 in June. An average of 2,854 abortions were performed every month in the first half of 2022. This means that abortions fell dramatically in Texas in response to the June ruling, even before the Human Life Protection Act or trigger ban went into effect on the 25th of August. Under the ban, abortion is outlawed except for procedures, procedures rather, to save the mother's life or prevent substantial bodily impairment, categories that include removing miscarried children and ectopic pregnancies. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show coming up later this very hour, a conversation with Daniel Darling, the characters of Christmas, the unlikely people caught up in the story of Jesus. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, Daniel Darling, the characters of Christmas, the unlikely people caught up in the story of Jesus. And in our second hour, Mark Stewart, losing my voice to find it. How a rock star discovered his greatest purpose. And in our final segment, a recitation from Heaven and Nature Sing, Hannah Anderson's devotional for Advent. That's all coming up. Okay, got to get my papers in order here. All right, here we go. Fear-mongering documentary on climate change featuring AOC. Well, it apparently bombed at the box office. A climate change documentary aimed at promoting Green New Deal initiatives and featuring Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gave new meaning to the term box office bomb with its dismal opening weekend. The total box office haul for opening weekend was a less than stellar $9,000. The Exhibitor Relations Corporation says the roadside attractions documentary on climate change to the end Starring AOC was voted out of the box office just $9,667 in 120 theaters, $81 per theater. There is a bipartisan push to um, demonetize TikTok. Lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are putting forth legislation to prevent the Chinese-run social media company TikTok from being a platform used by Americans to make money. It's no secret that TikTok is subservient to the Chinese Communist Party, which uses it to suck up reams of data on its users. While TikTok claims that its users' data is stored outside of China, there's nothing to suggest that Beijing doesn't have access to it. In light of this, Senator Marco Rubio and Representatives Mike Gallagher and um, a third 
have introduced legislation that would ban all transactions from any social media company in or under the influence of China, Russia, and several other foreign countries of concern. The bill is titled the Anti-Social CCP, averting the national threat of inter- uh, internet surveillance, oppressive censorship, and influence and algorithmic learning by the Chinese Communist Party. I'm glad they abbreviated it. Act, by the way. Well, this move follows several Republican-led states that have banned TikTok from state government use over security and privacy concerns, including stopping intentionally damaging influence from CCP uh, Communist Chinese Party agents. By demonetizing TikTok, users will not be able to make money on the platform, encouraging them to invest their time in other non CCP-controlled social media platforms. Ben Carson's name has been removed from a Detroit school. Leftists' woke skulls are the uh, iconoclasts of the current era whose self-righteous... uh, preclu- righteousness rather pre- precludes them from tolerating any idea or individual who doesn't conform to their own ideological sensitivities. Thus, it comes as little surprise that the woke school board in Detroit, Michigan, decided to remove the name of Dr. Benjamin Carson from the high school named in his honor. Carson's hometown is eschewing one its one of its own most successful and inspiring local heroes, a black man no less, solely due to the fact that Carson is a member of the wrong political party. Cancel culture is alive and well, Carson said in response to the school board's decision. Political correctness, wokeness, cancel culture, this is going to destroy us as a nation. We don't get a grip on it. The former staff member of Carson's, uh, when he served as the head of the Department of Housing and Urban Development, penned a letter challenging the decision. Carson has impeccable morals, impeccable character, they said, adding, for the students who are at the school, certainly he is somebody they can look up to, that they can try to emulate. He's a great example of our country. The same cannot be said for the woke schools who run most public schools, end quote. Uh, Richmond dug up a Confederate general's, um, General A.P. Hill's remains, Speaking of iconoclasts, the city of Richmond, Virginia, continued its crusade to expunge any vestige of Confederate history from public view, even digging up the buried remains of famed Confederate General A.P. Hill on Tuesday. Hill's casket has been buried under a monument featuring a statue in his likeness. Hill, who was killed in the waning days of the war between the states, had been buried at an, a spot in Richmond for over 130 years. The gravesite and statue were on public land, and the city has been in um, two-year legal battle with the uh, descendants of Hill over the statue's removal and subsequent ownership. They apparently lost. Well, criminal charges against Democrat um, mega-donor Sam Bankman-Fried has been unsealed. He faces life in prison. The government corrected an email sent to 9 million people about approved student loan forgiveness. President Biden reportedly lashed out about the media fixating on his age, saying, you think I don't know how expletive old I am? Joe Manchin's eye-opening answers to a party switch question suggests he knows what's coming. And Georgia could be the next state to try ranked-choice voting. Blacklisted Russian propagandists thrive on right-wing apps, Gab and Truth Social, a new study finds. You know, like Russian trolls thrived on left-wing apps like Facebook and Twitter. Well, the American Academy of Pediatrics suggests parents' rights advocates want to roll back child abuse protections. And an ex-CNN producer, John Griffin, he pled guilty to a child sex charge. Sexual abuse is rampant in federal prisons, according to a bipartisan investigation. And Democrat Governor Kate Brown commuted all of Oregon's death sentences. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez 
A climate documentary redefines box office bomb, averaging $81 per theater and a dismal opening weekend. And in a bit of humor, Elon Musk buys Santa's workshop, releasing emails showing how naughty and nice lists were created. Well, on this day in history, 1799, George Washington, the first president of the United States, dies at his Mount Vernon, Virginia home at age 67. 1819, Alabama joins the Union as the 22nd state. 1911, Norwegian explorer Roald Admundsen and his team become the first men, at least European men, to reach the South Pole, beating out a British expedition led by Robert F. Scott. 1916, President Woodrow Wilson vetoes an immigration measure aimed at preventing undesirables, in quotes, and anyone born in the Asiatic barred zone from entering the U.S. Congress would override Wilson's veto in February of 1917. 1962, the U.S. space probe Mariner 2 passes Venus at a distance of just over 21,000 miles, transmitting information about the planet, such as its hot surface temperature and predominantly carbon dioxide atmosphere. 1964, the U.S. Supreme Court in Heart of Atlanta Hotel, or rather Motel versus United States, rules that Congress was within its authority to enforce the Civil Rights Act of 1964 against racial discrimination by private businesses. In this case, a motel that refused to cater to to blacks. 1972, Apollo 17 astronauts Harrison Schmidt and Eugene uh, Cernan conclude their third and final moonwalk and blast off their... um, Rendezvous with the command, rendezvous rather, with the command module. 1981, Israel annexes the Golan Heights, which it had seized from Syria in 1967. 1985, William uh, Wilma Mankiller becomes the first woman to lead a major American Indian tribe as she takes office as principal chief at the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. 1985 as well, former New York Yankee outfielder Roger Maris who'd hit 61 home runs during the 1961 season, dies in Houston at age 51. 1986, the experimental aircraft Voyager, piloted by Dick Rutan and Jenna Yeager, takes off from Edwards Air Force Base in California on the first nonstop, non-refueled flight around the world. 1988, President Ronald Reagan, he authorizes the U.S. to enter into a substantive dialogue with the Palestinian Liberation Organization after Chairman Yasser Arafat said he was renouncing all forms of terrorism. 2005, President George W. Bush defends his decision to wage war in Iraq, even as he acknowledged that much of the intelligence turned out to be wrong. 2008, an Iraqi journalist hurls his shoes at President George W. Bush. During a news conference in Baghdad, Bush ducks the flying footwear as they whiz past his head and landed against the wall behind him. 2012, a gunman with a semi-automatic rifle kills 20 first graders and six educators at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, then commits suicide as police arrive. 2013, China carries out the world's first soft landing of a space probe on the moon in nearly four decades as the unmanned Chang-3 lander touched down on the lunar surface. And finally, on this day in history, 2017, the Federal Communications Commission voted to repeal the Obama-era net neutrality rules to move that a move rather that gives Internet service providers a free hand to slow or block specific websites and apps as they see fit or or charge more for faster speeds. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, Daniel Darling, author of The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Well, it's that season again with the lights, the gifts, the heartwarming sentiments that make up Christmas. Well, is that all there is? Well, my next guest makes the point that it's easy to become caught up in the flurry of activity during this season, and it starts earlier and earlier, forgetting about who is at the center of it all. How do you recapture our love for the Christmas story, for Jesus himself, and better understand those who played a pivotal role in his birth? Well, Christmas is more than Hallmark movies and trips to Grandma's house, says my next guest, author of The Characters of Christmas. It's a celebration of the birth of the Son of God, the long-promised Messiah. It's important for us not to not get caught up simply in the sentimentality of Christmas without realizing what we're really celebrating. Well, the book, The Characters of Christmas... Kennedy takes readers back in time to Christ's birth, and he looks at the unusual group of misfits and societal outcasts and those who are often overlooked in the Christmas story. He brings each one of them to life. He explores their role in the Christmas story and digs deep to reveal truths from their lives that impact believers today. Well, Daniel Darling is a prolific author, a speaker who believes Christmas music should be sung all year round. He currently serves as the vice president for communications for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He is the author of several books. He's also a columnist for Home Life and a regular contributor to In Touch Magazine, Christianity Today, uh, Gospel Coalition. His op-eds have appeared in places you probably frequent, USA Today, CNN, Washington Times, Time Magazine, Huffington Post, and many, many others. He joins us today to talk about his fascinating book that encourages us to look at the characters of Christmas, the unlikely people caught up in the story of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us. I am so glad to be on here on the radio with you in Portland. Uh, Great to be with you. Well, thank you, and Merry Christmas. (laughs) Merry Christmas to you as well. Well, it is easy in our culture especially to reduce Christmas to a set of um, sentimentalities and experiences that oftentimes fall short of what we're encouraged to believe Christmas is all about. Um, what what drove you to encourage us to think about and to consider the people surrounding the story of Christmas that might hearken us back to the true meaning of the uh, the season? And it's it's great that we have these familiar rhythms and and the same songs and the same story over and over again because I think God uses it to shape our hearts uh, and draw us toward Himself. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, every year we're we're wanting to. Uh, find new and fresh um, angles at looking at the Christmas story, and I think the Christmas story is like a multifaceted diamond, really, where there's so many, there's so many things about the gospel, about the incarnation that that uh, can draw us in. And this year, I wanted to see what would it look like if uh, we looked at these ordinary people, whom we we've kind of lionized at this point. We uh, they decorate our nativity scenes, uh, we, our kids dress up like them in our Christmas pageants. But in the first century, at the first Christmas, they were just ordinary people who uh, were swept up in the story of God coming to earth in Jesus. It is so interesting, the cast of characters that God chooses to play a part in this most important story in human history. And as I mentioned, and you certainly emphasize in the book, these are not the cast of characters that Hollywood would necessarily have chosen. They would quickly have overlooked them in favor of uh, the, the rich and beautiful, if you will. And yet, God strategically places these ordinary people around these events, and there's something to be learned from each one of them. You're exactly right. If you and I were writing this story, we would not have chosen the characters that are here. Uh, you think of um, the, the one chosen to be the mother of Jesus, Mary. She's a, a poor peasant Jewish girl. 
Uh, you think of Joseph, who's just an ordinary carpenter. Um, you think of the shepherd to to whom the announcement came that they were they were just lowly shepherds. Um, we would have had a press conference and a social media campaign and would have announced in you know in Rome or at least in Jerusalem where the religious elite, elite were not in Bethlehem and we wouldn't have chosen people from the backwater town of Nazareth and yet this is uh whom uh God chose this tells us something about the kingdom of God that is made up mostly of ordinary people yeah absolutely well let's talk about some of those characters beginning with the uh, the two that we are perhaps most familiar with uh, Joseph who was chosen to um, to be the earthly father of the Son of God, um, he's he's hand chosen for a task that I think most of us would shrink back from. What do you think about um, Joseph being chosen for that task, and what do we know about Joseph? What can we learn from him? You know, what we know about Joseph is that he always did the next right thing. Uh, the Bible calls him uh, righteous, and um, you know, I wanted to focus on him in, in the first chapter because I think he's often forgotten in the story. Uh, there's maybe one or two songs written about Joseph. Um, but here we see Joseph right away, even when he finds out that Mary is pregnant, he does the right thing by wanting to put her away privately. This would be the, 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 uh, instead of the more public way that to shame someone who is an unwed mother. And then when the angel comes to him, he obeys and he gets up and he makes Mary his, you know, he, he's not afraid to make Mary his wife. Um, he takes the child to Egypt when the, when the angel visits him and, uh, takes Jesus to Egypt and Mary and Jesus to Egypt to, to, uh, for their for their rescue from Herod, um, he was willing to father a child that was not his own. And and think about what he was signing up for. Um, you know, Mary got an angelic visit, Joseph got an angelic visit, but the rest of their family did. And for mm-hmm. all of their lives, there'd be a shame and a stigma attached to them. Uh, and they were willing to bear that shame. Joseph was willing to bear that shame for the one who would later bear his shame. Mm. Well, let's talk about Mary. First of all, she's not even a legal adult by our standards today. She is a peasant girl. She probably hasn't traveled much outside of the circles that made up her everyday life. And yet God singles her out. This obscure teenager, he singles her out from among all the women on the earth that could have been chosen, or at least from the nation of Israel, that might have been chosen for that role. What can we learn from Mary? And why did, uh, why did God choose her? You know, I think what we what we see in Mary is right from her response of, you know, first of all, why did, you know, essentially, why did you choose me? How can these things be? And that's the question we ask today. How can it be that uh, uh, Jesus could be both God and man? It's this wonderful and beautiful mystery. And yet she said yes. She said yes to God. And let's understand what she was saying yes to. Um, later, when she would bring Jesus to the temple for purification, Simeon uh, would prophesy over her and say that a sword will pierce your soul. In other words, Mary was signing up for, for a difficult lifetime of hardship, of shame. Uh, probably there was a stigma surrounding her her whole life. We even see later in the Gospels that many of Jesus' even own family and siblings didn't believe the Messiah uh, narrative. And yet she was willing to do this. Um, she would be, as a mother, she would see her son grow up. She would see him scorned. She would see him uh, reviled. She, he'd be an object of derision. Uh, he'd be unjustly tried. He'd be put on a cross. She's sitting there at the foot of the cross as he's dying and bleeding, and he's mocked as the soldiers take his body off the cross and bury him. And she did all this, and she's willing to obey God because she knew and she believed that this child uh, was the Son of God. And even though uh, she had endured hardship for for Jesus, Jesus would endure the ultimate hardship for her and paying uh, for her sins. Mm. 
Let's talk about uh, another two, a set of characters that there aren't many Christmas carols about, if there are any at all. And that's Zachariah and Elizabeth. Mary chooses mm-hmm. to go visit her cousin uh, while she is bearing uh, Jesus. And that's such an interesting part of the story of uh, Jesus' incarnation. But talk a bit about Zachariah and Elizabeth and why that story is included in this uh, greatest of, of all stories. What's interesting about their story is, you know, uh, the first appearance of, of an angel comes to Zechariah in this Christmas story. So after 400 years of silence, of, of no prophets, no angels, um, uh, coming to a cynical people who had read the prophecies, but they're not really believing him because false messiahs had come, they're under the, the thumb of Roman rule. Here's Zechariah with a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to light uh, to, to give the incense in the temple. And Gabriel appears to him and says, your prayers have been answered. Your prayers for a son, your prayers for the, for the, also for a Messiah. And what we can learn from Zechariah and Elizabeth, I think, is a couple of things. I think, number one, they were well past childbearing age, and yet uh, God birthed in them a son, John the Baptist, who'd be the final prophet, who would be a forerunner of Jesus. Um, God had to silence Zechariah because of his unbelief. And I think what we learned from them is sometimes God has to put us in a period of silence and waiting mm. for us to see him work. But we also see this theme of rebirth and recreation that you see throughout the Bible. Abraham and Sarah could not have children. Hannah could not have children. Zechariah and Elizabeth. And yet God birthed something new out of what was dead. And this is something that God wants to do in each of us. He wants to birth uh, this new spiritual birth in each of us. We're talking with Daniel Darling. He's the author of The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus. And to consider each of them as we contemplate the incarnation of Christ, his birth, and uh, all of those events, the book is published by Moody. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're continuing a conversation with Daniel Darling. He is a prolific writer and speaker. His latest book, The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus, encouraging us to consider the lessons that can be learned from each of these characters that were selected carefully by God to help unfold this drama, the birth of the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, we've mentioned in a couple of these stories the appearance of angels, and in the 21st First century, there are lots. Uh, there's lots of uh, speculation about who the angels are and and uh, what their role is. But here in Scripture, we see specifically angels that have been dispatched for a singular purpose, and that is to herald the coming of the Messiah. Talk a little bit about what we can learn from the angels in the Christmas story and how significant they are. Well, you really can't tell the Christmas story without the angels, can you? Because, no, you can't. Uh, you see. You see Gabriel there announcing to Zechariah about John the Baptist. You see uh, angels announcing to Mary that she's going to be pregnant with the, the Son of God. You see an angel come uh, multiple times to Joseph. Uh, you see an angel that go into the wise men to warn them. Um, and you just you see angels fill uh, the Bethlehem fields uh, announcing the birth of Jesus. And then all through the narrative of Jesus' life, when he's when he's uh, in the wilderness of temptation, they're nourishing him. When he is about to be crucified, Jesus has to restrain the angels from defending him. And then there's, uh, there's an angel sitting on the on the empty, uh, sitting by the empty tomb, announcing that he's risen again. And an angel there at his ascension, and an angel helping 
to build the early church. And then at the end of the age, we see angels in heaven worshiping Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. So angels are not like humans. Uh, angels are not recipients of grace. Uh, angels, you know, God has humans as a special a creature who are made in his image. The gospel is for humans. It's between God and uh, really between God and his image bearers. But angels have a courtside seat to this entire plan of redemption. And I think what we need to do is to listen to the words of Charles Wesley when he says, hark the herald angels sing. In other mm. words, listen to the message that the angels are saying. Step back and look at it from their perspective of God's marvelous plan from Genesis to Revelation, this wonderful plan, and it should cause us really to worship. Oh, absolutely. Such a beautiful picture when you consider the the appearances of angels in so many significant events. I appreciate your reminding us of that thread that runs throughout human history. Now, again, some of the more obscure characters that make up the uh, the cast of those who are witnesses to or participants in the events of Christmas. Uh, let's start with the uh, with the shepherds, the innkeeper. Uh, these are people we don't know their names. We don't know necessarily how many of them there were. Um, but these are, are not people who are named, but play a significant role in um, observing and responding to the events of Christmas. Well, what's wonderful and interesting about the shepherds, I think there's a few things. I think it's highly uh, symbolic that the announcement of the coming of the Son of God doesn't come in Rome, doesn't come in uh, in Jerusalem where the religious elite are. It comes in a shepherd field to lowly shepherds. Shepherds were not uh, considered uh, high-class society. They were they were had to kind of tend the sheep outside the city. Uh, but it tells us what kind of kingdom that God is establishing, a kingdom uh, of mostly ordinary people. He comes among the lowly. But I also think it's significant because shepherding is a theme of the type of leadership that God mm-hmm. provides throughout Scripture. God calls himself the shepherd of Israel. Uh, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. You know, Israel is rebuked for having leadership that is not that are not good shepherds. Jesus would later call himself the good shepherd. Um it's saying this is the kind of king that Jesus is going to be. He's not going to be like Caesar. He's not going to be like Herod. He's going to be a shepherd king who's going to sit on the throne of Israel's original shepherd king. And lastly, I think there's symbolism because the announcement of the final sacrifice for sins comes to those who would tend sheep who would be used for temple sacrifice. The announcement of uh, the one whom John called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world comes to those uh, who are tending the lambs uh, used uh, for the sacrifice. So I don't think it's um, accidental that God chooses shepherds to receive the first announcement of Christmas. Mm. Now let's talk about the innkeeper. The word is not used. We we assume some things about the individual or individuals who are responsible ultimately for housing the uh, the first the holy family. But what can we learn from and what do we know about the innkeeper, if you will? Well, we don't know much uh and scholars debate in terms of what was what was it actually like uh for Mary and Joseph. What you know, where did they have to stay in a cave? Was it a more traditional inn, like we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan? Uh, what, did, did they have to stay with uh, family in their homes, in their hometown of Bethlehem? We really don't know. But one thing we do know, Luke makes a point of saying that there was no room for him. And so um, the one for whom, the one who created the world, who, who fashioned humans in his image, 
uh, did not have any room in the world he created. The one uh, who, for whom there was no room, though, is making room for those who put their faith in him. But there had to be somebody to tell Joseph and Mary um, that there's no room. And you can imagine the scene here. This, if there's an innkeeper or proprietor, whoever it was, he's not humming to himself, oh, holy night. Uh, he's just thinking, this is two visitors come by that I don't have room. What am I going to do? Let me scramble to make room for him. Uh, Joseph is not exactly singing Silent Night when he's knocking on the door furiously trying to get a room. Uh, little did, did this the person here who's an innkeeper or whoever was there that night understand that in this place, on this night, would be a special night, a holy night, a historic night. The people who, I just imagine the people who had to sleep maybe next to Mary and Joseph or uh, people who had just happened to use, choose this place to rest for the night were witnesses to the uh, historic, uh, e- eternal, life-changing evening when the Son of God was born there. Mm. You write about the wise men and the fact that we don't know that there were three, and most likely there were more of them. But I want to take a moment and focus on Herod. He's sort of the the bad guy in this story, and, and rightly labeled so. But I don't think we think much about him in this story. Talk a bit about Herod and what we can learn from his role in the unfolding of this uh, this story. Well, what's interesting about the way we think about Christmas, um, I don't know if you've noticed, but all of our Christmas stories uh, have a, have a bad guy, right? Even you know, think of it's a wonderful life, which is one of my favorites. You have Mr. Potter. Uh, if you have um, you have the Grinch that stole Christmas. Uh, you have uh, in the Christmas Carol. You have Scrooge. Even in our Hallmark movies that my wife makes me watch, there's always a bad person who is trying to destroy Christmas. And I think that comes from our acknowledgement that we do know that there's a battle between good versus evil. And in the original Christmas, Herod is the bad, original bad guy. He's threatened by the presence of Jesus. So instead of acknowledging Jesus as king, he's threatened, and he goes and commits violence against young baby boys. But what he doesn't also realize is that he is just in a long line of antichrists throughout the ages who raise up against God's plan. This was prophesied in Genesis when, when God said that the seed of the serpent would nip at the heels of the seed of the woman but the seed of that woman would one day crush the serpent. And so Herod thought he had power. Everyone in Israel thought Herod had power. Everyone was afraid of him. But the real power was that infant baby that fled to Egypt as a refugee who would one day uh, crush the head of the serpent. Mm. Well, let's uh, let's talk about two others who are rarely mentioned when we're talking about um, the Christmas story, Simeon and Anna. It seems almost like a side story, and yet it's significant because they had a long view looking back and considering the promises that had been made. Well, Simeon and Anna kind of appear out of nowhere on the pages of this story. Uh, but what we know about Simeon is that he was someone who, unlike everyone else, it seems, in Israel, had read really read and understood the prophecies and had really taken them literally when it said unto us a child must be born. And then he's reading in Micah that this Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so he's waiting and he's waiting at the temple. People probably think he's crazy. There's that old guy over there. He really believes these prophecies. You know, very similar to today when people uh, say about Christians, oh, they think Jesus is going to come again. That's really great. I don't think it's going to happen. But here he is. He's believing those. And he's asking the Lord to show him 
which couple and which baby um, is the Messiah. And one day the Spirit whispers to him, this couple here, this baby. And so he goes and he blesses Mary and Joseph and he blesses Jesus. But then he says something interesting. He says, now I can die. In other words, once you've had an encounter with Jesus, you are at peace with your life and at peace with facing your own mortality, which I think is a lesson and a powerful truth for all of us. He could, he could face death because Jesus himself, that baby, would face death on the cross and defeat it. Um, and then we have Anna, who uh, we know even less about, but we know she was a prophetess. We think she was a widow who, uh, in those days, there was no social safety net, so she probably uh, was very poor. She, too, was waiting in the temple and believing those prophecies. Probably they thought she was crazy. Here's this old woman over there. Uh, bless her heart. You know, she, she thinks this is really going to happen but she believed. And it, both of these, Anna and Simeon, show us that God comes to those who seek him. God comes to those who wait on him. And I think that's a lesson for us. This Absolutely. Christmas. Once again, the book is titled The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus. And there are 11 chapters. You could uh, study them for the 12 days of Christmas. The book is published by Moody and a great study as we anticipate celebrating the incarnation of Christ. Daniel Darling, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's great to be here on the radio with you in Portland, and I hope you have a Merry Christmas. Thank you. You too. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. I've been looking forward to a conversation with Mark Stewart. The name is probably familiar to you. He was the lead singer of a very popular uh, rock band, Christian rock band. And his book is titled Losing My Voice to Find It, How a Rock Star Discovered His Greatest Purpose. Well, it's the incredible story of a lead singer's rise to fame, his crushing fall when he lost his singing voice, his career, and his marriage, and then found a new calling that's more in tune with God than he ever thought possible. Well, Mark Stewart was the front man of popular Christian rock band Audio Adrenaline at a time when Christian music, the scene was exploding. Advancing from garage band to global success, the group sold out stadiums all over the world, won Grammy Awards, and even celebrated an album going uh, gold. But after almost 20 years, Mark's voice began to give out. When doctors diagnosed him with a a debilitating disease, the career with the band he'd founded and dedicated his life to building was now gone. Then, to his shock, uh, his wife ended their marriage, and he believed he'd lost everything. He wasn't sure about his future. He traveled to Haiti to help with the band's ministry. And the rest, as they say, is history. And we'll talk a bit about that today. Well, again, Mark Stewart, perhaps best known as the lead vocalist for the Christian rock band Audio Adrenaline, is a songwriter, singer, speaker, missionary, and advocate for vulnerable children in Haiti. Although he calls uh, Franklin, Tennessee home, he travels full time with his wife, Aegis, and their two children in their family RV. Yeah, I've been thinking about that since I I learned it. Again, the book is titled Losing My Voice to Find It, How a Rock Star Discovered His Greatest Purpose. Mark Stewart, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. First of all, I think everyone wants to know, how are you doing vocally? Well, um, basically the same. Uh, You can probably tell uh, with my scratchy vocal, even on the phone, um, that my voice doesn't work and it hasn't gotten... Uh, any better. In fact, it's probably gotten about a little bit worse, but it's, it stays close to the same. I, I developed a vocal disorder called spasmodic dysphonia, and that's what took my singing voice away. 
And when I have to speak um, loudly or try to project my voice, the muscle spasms kind of take over and my voice breaks apart. Mm -hmm. In essence, I I lost control of my voice, which is pretty ironic. Yeah, it certainly is. The very thing that had brought you fame and fortune, if you will, um, being disabled in, in that way. You begin the book reflecting on your, your youth. Your father was a preacher, you write, and a singer, and I learned about God somewhere between the two. Talk a little bit about uh, your early years and how your music influenced your life. Sure. Well, my dad um, was, a, was a Southern gospel singer and a, and a preacher, pastor. I grew up in the church Sunday morning, Sunday night, youth group, Wednesday night, Bible study. I was the president of the youth group. Uh, for me, it was a comprehensive thing that my dad presented me was the intellect of being a, a Bible scholar. He was a professor and very wise man and very studious of the Bible, but he was also a singer, which incorporated, in essence, a lot of storytelling, a lot of emotion. And because of those two things, I was just immersed and enamored with the story of the gospel. And that's, um, that's, you know, how I found Jesus was because of my dad and growing up under his tutelage. And mm. he's still preaching today. And I, he was a missionary, and I've, I've always been a fan of his. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a marvelous thing to be able to say about uh, about your father. In the first chapter of the book, you write about the Dove Awards 2003. You had had some challenges with your voice prior to that, but it was being managed. Can you tell us a bit about the 2003 Dove Awards and, and you... Um, being called upon to perform, and the fear that had to grip you to some degree, not knowing if your voice was going to uh, to function. Yeah, it, we were up for uh, Album of the Year and Song of the Year uh, in 2003. The, probably my favorite song of all time from Audio Drone was a song called Ocean Floor, which basically um, talks about the depths of God's grace. Our, our sins are thrown into the bottom of the ocean, and it, it just resonated with people, and we loved singing it, especially me, because I was struggling with so much, especially the, really the shame of losing my marriage was falling apart. Um, and that song every night would speak life to me. So this night, we were up for the grant, uh, the Dove Award uh, for that song, and Stephen Curtis, who we had been on tour with uh, for about 80 cities a couple years before that, was introducing us. But prior to that, um, my voice wasn't working, and a lot of people thought I was just hoarse, or if mm-hmm. I took a break, it would go away. But for me, I knew something else was wrong, because I was visiting vocal doctors, vocal coaches. They would scope my vocal cords, and they would say, nothing's wrong with your voice. Nothing's wrong with your vocal cords. And that was the frustrating part. So I would go through my career as my voice continued to disintegrate and be and get uh, steroid shots, which is basically prednisone. And prednisone would take the swelling down and allow me to sing um, pretty well for six weeks to eight weeks, something like that. And then it would digress back to the normal uh, broken voice. And um, But eventually that, that prednisone would wear off, that it wouldn't have the same effect and my voice wouldn't work. And that, the night, well, just a couple nights, but before the devil words, I went to my doctor and he's like, Mark, we got to stop doing this. And um, I got a shot. And usually I didn't know when that prednisone would kick in. So, you know, literally I was walking on stage in front of eight to 10,000 people that year at the devil words at the Nashville Arena. And um, it was frightening because at that point I was, I was thinking I was about to unveil 
the fact that my career was over in front of the whole music industry. Mm. Um, but God showed up that night, and he allowed me to sing. It wasn't perfect, but it was it was good enough to keep moving. But anyway, that yeah, that's how the book starts, was at, right at the, um, the Dove Awards in 2003, and it kind of rolls from there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's a pretty emotional book about really the uh, the journey of losing control of really everything that I had. Yeah, yeah. One of the recurring themes in the book is uh, the feeling of being an imposter. Now, you are a genuine, sincere man of faith. Can you explain what you meant by that and how you dealt with this uh, this feeling that you were an imposter, that somehow you're going to be discovered along the way? Well, the, the um, I think most of us um, from time to time feel unworthy or mm-hmm. often feel unworthy. And that was a part of this imposter feeling that I had. When, you know, we were walking on stage and doing Billy Graham crusades and Luis Palau crusades. We're, we're presenting the gospel in a powerful way. Um, and, you know, it, it, I just didn't feel worthy a lot of times mm-hmm. to be representing this big, beautiful, perfect God in this kind of broken vessel. But there was two things that really um, made me feel like imposter. It was is the fact that we we were like um, not that good musically, and because we we kind of felt like we snuck into the party as a band, and, and also the fact that spiritually speaking, sometimes I didn't feel quite qualified to lead and and stand in front of seven, eight, ten thousand people and say, "Here, this is what Jesus means to me." But eventually. I realized that's what resonated with our audience is the fact that we weren't perfect, mm-hmm. that we did struggle with our own faith sometimes, and we did struggle with our in, imperfections. Uh, and then we began to write more about that and embrace that, and that's where God really began to use um, our music and our band. Yeah, that authenticity, I, I think, it made you very uh, appealing to a lot of people because we do all, it from time to time, feel like people's expectations or um, what they think is true of us exceeds what's actually there. And uh, so I think that's one of the things that resonated with your audiences, that you were authentic. Yeah, I totally agree. And and I also feel like musically, this is a little, I mean, spiritually, yes, I think people, we, we sing about our vulnerability and our often, we, we were pretty transparent. At the same time, musically, we, I think kids and especially young people thought, hey, you know, I could never be, in DC Talk, or I could never be in Michael W. Smith's band, but you know, I might be good enough to be an audience, you know. And I think that also rang true with an audience. We were like their their band, you know, back in the day, and that's that's kind of what resonated. But what most people didn't know was the struggle that was going on underneath that for me. There was there was a lot of dark moments and depression walking on stage, even on tour with. At the, you know, near the climax of our band with Mercy Me, where I really was struggling to even walk on stage. Um, you know, looking out into the crowd, just saying, "God, I need you to show up." And then it, it was a it was a battle. But even then, I saw God work. Mm-hmm. But it was just for me personally. I, I didn't think He was good anymore for me. I was like, "How could you let all this happen to me?" Um, and I even even in the midst of this brokenness, I saw him work through me, but he wasn't really showing up like I wanted him to for me. And I never lost faith in him as 
my Savior or my God, but I did begin to waver on the fact that I I don't think he was good for me anymore, mm-hmm. like We're, good enough. He, he didn't have good things for me. We're going to take a Uh, quick break, but when we come back, we'll explore that just a bit. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Mark Stewart. Uh, He is lead vocalist for the Christian rock band uh, Audio Adrenaline. They no longer perform, but he's a songwriter, singer, speaker, missionary, and author of Losing My Voice to Find It, How a Rock Star Discovered His Greatest Purpose. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. And we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Mark Stewart. He uh, is a Grammy award-winning lead singer of Audio Adrenaline. And the book is titled Losing My Voice to Find It, How a Rock Star Discovered His Greatest Purpose. And it wasn't on the stage fronting the band. You write about your, your mother. And just before our break, we were talking about some of the challenges that you uh, face, but your mother wrote about your sister who had been diagnosed with leukemia. And in the book, you write, you quoting your mother, this family has been preaching and singing about Jesus for years. We have two choices. We can move forward in fear, anger, or feeling sorry for ourselves, or we can face this knowing God has only good things in store for us. We either believe this or we don't. Now, your mom is an incredible woman. Uh, how did that message resonate to you at this moment in your Christian life when you were teetering in wondering whether or not God was sufficient for you, if his grace was sufficient for you, if this is the direction your life uh, should continue to go? Well, I was, needless to say, super proud of my mom. Mm-hmm. I, I thought she was so heroic. But at the same time, I watched my dad, uh, in essence, crumble crumble a bit right in front of my eyes as a, a faith leader, as a pastor and gospel singer, you know, he was like, how, God, how could you let this happen? I've moved to Haiti, I'm a missionary for you, and now you let my daughter get cancer. And, um, but then my, then my mom showed up and said, this is either real or it's not. And at that moment, our family did make a choice. We said, we're believing this. And we moved forward um, in that diagnosis. And with my sister, we lived in a hotel for two years in Memphis at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. And we watched God show up. But that was a challenge to me, too. I remember that moment. And I think it was a precursor, just a, a bit of foreshadowing for what God had in store for me. And I think that's how God works in our stories. Mm-hmm. He gives us a bit of foreshadowing in the relationships that we have for what's about to come our way. And that's what happened to me. You quote your um, uh, pastor, Jamie George, who says, There are three idols that drive us, comfort, control, and approval. Uh, talk a little bit about combating these idols and what role that might have played for you in resolving to um, believe that God is sufficient and to move forward in faith. After I went through um, what I went through, I was jaded and really didn't want to be in church anymore. And my pastor just kept speaking out to me, finally got me in the community and was really what I was missing. He started to teach me um about God's goodness and the fact that, you know, we do have idols, which were control for me um, and comfort uh, and, and performance. All those, and it, it, all those things were, were driving me in audio adrenaline and I didn't know it. And as I was losing control of my voice, I was also losing control of my career. I was, I was fighting to save a marriage, but I couldn't control that either. Everything that I thought I'd prayed for and that God had given me, um, I 
uh, also was trying to control and manipulate it as well. But it wasn't until I lost everything that I realized that when you completely surrender to him that and, and give him control, um, your life begins to move into a bigger place. And, and when you live a big life, um, suffering it seems minuscule. You're going to suffer. You're going to go through trials, but it doesn't seem that monumental when you know your father runs the universe and he's in control. And that's kind of how you know I moved through my life. And that was a moment um, after I kind of went through it that brought some clarity for sure. Mm. Now, you spent some time in Haiti, as you mentioned earlier, as a teenager after your parents moved there to serve as missionaries. And Haiti has played an important role in your life. In fact, you heard while there some children singing about uh, their father's house, which would become the inspiration for uh, Audio Adrenaline's uh, hit song, Big House. Tell us a little bit about that and your connection to Haiti and the ministry that you have been engaged in there for many, many years. Yeah, my my parents uh, moved to Haiti when I was a teenager. I fell in love with it. I always thought Haiti was beautiful rather than broken. You know, it is a impoverished nation, but I just fell in love with the beauty of the people, their resiliency, their creativity. And one of the things I remember from a young age was the song that kids were singing, and they would sing, Do you want to go to my father's house? There's joy, joy, joy. There's room, 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 and food. And I wasn't too young to pick up on the irony of kids who didn't have anything, barely a roof over their head. And sometimes not even a, a biological father in place, nor food to eat, was singing about their father in heaven going to prepare a home for them where they could be a kid, where they could enjoy food. And, and you know, I grew up as a preacher's kid, and I was often afraid of the concept of heaven. And, and when I heard that song, I was like, this is what I want to write about. I'm going to write a song for all the kids out there to heaven seems like a distant, cold place. You know, streets of gold to me. It, it kind of feels a little cold, you know. I, I realize it's beautiful, but I could never grasp it. But I could certainly grasp a big table with lots of food and rooms for all my friends and my family and a place to play football out in the yard. And I'm like, this is this is what I want to write about. And um, because of that Haitian song, um you know, Big House was written, and that was our career song, Georgine. That mm-hmm. song gave us a platform. And now, really, what is it, uh, 17 years later? No, 20, 25 years later, <laughs> I think. Twenty, Yeah, 27 years later, we look back on our career, and we see God at work, that he gave us that song in the beginning to give us a platform, to give us a career, so that someday we would continue to go back to Haiti and work with the with the children. And that that's the beauty of our God. He's so poetic. He's a beautiful author. And he loves intertwining these beautiful moments into our kind of the DNA of our stories. And um, that's the beauty of telling your story and your testimony. That's the power of it because you get to say, here's what God did. Here's what he's doing now. Here's how he worked. And even when I didn't think he was there, this is how he was doing good. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what happens. And now we have an organization called the Hands and Feet Project. We care for 120 kids that have been abandoned or orphaned from their parents. And we get to provide family for them. 
We've reunified over 50 kids with their parents. We do family preservation through job creation. And we're just, hey, we want to provide family for you. And Big House was kind of the genesis of all that. And now we get to provide that house with a family for these kids and show them what their father in heaven has for them someday. It's even going to be, you know, infinitely better than this house that we have here on earth. Um, But that's kind of what we do. Yeah, yeah. You and your wife, Aegis, you've adopted two children from Haiti. How has that changed your uh, your life? Oh, well, I had no kids with my first marriage, um, and I didn't think I would ever have children. I didn't I didn't know if I was ever going to get remarried, but God gave me this beautiful woman uh, at church there with Jamie George, who we were talking about earlier. And then God put it on our hearts that he wanted me to be a dad. And my heart just leaped inside of me, and I was like, oh, what a joy. So we, we were able to adopt these two beautiful kids, uh, children, a boy and a girl, named Crystalla and Journey. And it is, it, it's been the biggest miracle of my life to be a dad, to get to see what our, how our father adores us and how he wants us to succeed and how, he want, how he, our, his love is infinite. It, it's just been a, an amazing journey. Yeah. I've learned so much about the, 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 the characters of God, but they've also taught me um, the burden of, a, of children that have been abandoned by their, their parents, too, because they have a broken story. So they, we talk a lot about that, and that's why I'm so passionate today about working with children in crisis. Yeah. Well, once again, the book is titled Losing My Voice to Find It, How a Rock Star Discovered His Greatest Purpose, uh, written by my guest, Mark Stewart. I know that your voice isn't what it used to be, but I'm so grateful that you're still using it to bring glory to God and to serve those in need. And I thank you for taking the time to share your story with us here today. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dorothy. All right. The book is published by Thomas Nelson, currently available, and goes into much more detail with a foreword by Tim Tebow. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I wanted to resume sharing from Hannah Anderson's Heaven and Nature Sing. It's an Advent reflection devotional to bring joy to the world during this season. And I just wanted to pick up where we left off. This chapter was titled Holy Seed. When you hear the word creation or nature, do you think of your own body or do you tend to think about whatever it is not human, whatever is out there apart from you, the trees, mountains, skies and animals? If you're like me, you might have to pause a moment before you answer. Theoretically speaking, I know that human bodies are created by God and that he's called them good since the beginning. But experientially, rather, there is this gap between my sense of self and the world around me. Like many people in modern society, it often feels as if I'm observing the natural world rather than participating in it. But the more I learn about how creation praises its creator, and the more I learn about my own place in it, the more I believe that my body, not just my will or conscience, sings a part of that song. In fact, in Psalm 139, David considers his physical body to be one of the clearest expressions of God's power and wisdom, even from its earliest moments. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. 
In this season, when we celebrate the promised son coming in human form, a human body, we must not miss how our bodies testify to God's faithfulness. But to do this, you'll have to back up to the beginning, back to the time when God created you in the darkness of your mother's womb. But of course, that's exactly where the story of Jesus' body begins as well. After Luke introduces us to Zechariah and Elizabeth, he turns our attention to a young woman named Mary who lives in Nazareth. She is a relative of Elizabeth, and like her, she too receives a visit from the angel Gabriel. Unaccustomed to such heavenly visions, Mary is naturally afraid, but Gabriel calms her and tells her she has found favor with God and will conceive and give birth to a son. You will name him Jesus. There's only one problem. While God may be the one who creates human bodies, he uses a process called sexual reproduction to do so. We share this process with many trees, flowers, and animals, and although Mary likely didn't know the details of how it all worked, she knew a human baby needed a father. She was engaged to a man named Joseph, but they were not yet married, and she was a virgin. So she understandably confused. Gabriel reassures her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. We could explore the significance of this virgin birth at length, as many theologians have. But don't miss the startling reality that the Bible is holding out in front of us. The promised Son was conceived. Just like us. Jesus spent nine months growing inside his mother's womb, just like us. His physical body went from ovum to zygote to embryo to fetus to newborn. And whatever we might conclude about the uniqueness of his conception or the way this uniqueness plays itself out in his life and ministry, there's something to learn from the conception itself. During a fertile period each month, a woman's ovaries release an egg to be potentially fertilized by a father. It's not the egg's exit of the body along with the um, the lining during the uh, cycle But if the egg is fertilized and the conditions are right, a few days after fertilization, it will implant much the same way a seed is planted into the ground, beginning a nine-month process of growth and development. And this sense conception is a promise. When a couple sees a positive pregnancy test or hears a first heartbeat, it is a promise that in a few months' time, they will receive a living child into their family. We call them expectant parents because they are expecting the promise to be fulfilled. But even as joy and hope take center stage, loss and grief wait in the shadows because at no point is pregnancy or birth assured. In fact, the reproductive process is so vulnerable that many people say a third to one half of fertilized eggs never attach to the uterine wall, leaving the body without implanting. Of those that do implant, another 10 to 20 percent will be lost to miscarriage, not having the chance to develop. This agonizing, grief-inducing effect of the fall has been women's reality, not just in our time, but for ages. So when Mary received the announcement of the promised son, she did not yet receive the reality of the promised son. And while the word of the Lord may be sure, it was not yet fulfilled. And between the promise and its fulfillment, between faith and sight, between conception and birth, we find hope. In this moment, Mary had a choice— She could doubt the angel, as Zechariah had, or she could receive the word of God in faith, believing it was true. Only time would prove whether her hope was well-placed or not. But in this moment, with the angel standing before her, she chooses to believe. See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. 
And once she believes, it changes her. Because once a mother has the hope of a child, she begins to prepare for that child. She changes her diet. She tells her closest friends and family. And she gathers all that she'll need to care for her coming little one. In her hope, she behaves as if promise is true. In James 1, Scripture likens our salvation to the process of birth, writing that God the Father, by His own choice, He gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of fruit firstfruits of His creatures. Building on the metaphor, James continues, Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. In much the same way a fertilized implant In a mother's womb or a seed sprouts from the ground, the word of God begins to take root in our lives. Sometimes before we even understand what's happening, an encounter here, a word there, something like um, trust and hope slowly develop inside us. But once we do understand what God is doing, once we understand the promise of new life, it changes us. Because just as an expectant mother cares for the life inside her, changing her babies, her habits rather, and acting in hope this child will come, we too must become doers of the word and not hearers only. In this way, conception and pregnancy teach us to shape of the Christian life. They teach us how to behave as we wait for our hope to show itself to be true, to walk according to what we've heard and what we expect. Consider what the Apostle, Paul, the Apostle John writes in his epistle. So what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him as He is, and everyone who has this hope in Him purifies Himself just as He is pure." Like our own bodies that once developed in the secret parts of our mother's womb, our hope develops in small secret ways, cultivated by the hand of God. And so for us, the question is whether we will receive the promise of God, whether we with Mary will say, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. And then live as if all the things we say we hope for are actually true, even when they seem improbable or impossible. And so in this same hope, we live believing that quiet, small acts of faith will grow into something greater and more life-giving than any of us can imagine. So that when we finally begin to feel those small flutters and kicks, when hope begins to move and dance inside us, we believe the promise even more. Until one day, hope is finally birthed into the world and we see the promised son with our own eyes. Again, Hannah Anderson, Heaven and Nature Sing. Want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.